Good afternoon, everybody. How are y'all doing? Wasn't this morning incredible? Awesome. Hey, I'm Jason Parks. I'm the pastor of Refuge Church in Huntsville, Alabama. And again, we just want to welcome you to Art Conference. And we want to welcome you to this app session, The Race for Unity. Wasn't that panel today just incredible? I mean... I cannot wait to see what God does here. King David wrote, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. And that's our heartbeat and that's our prayer is that our churches would look like heaven and that we would bring the heartbeat of heaven to our communities. And so we have an incredible panel this afternoon. And these are some of my ministry heroes. I know there's some of yours as well, and we're going to be blessed today. These men are anointed. They love Jesus. They love the kingdom and they love the local church. So please join me in welcoming Pastor George Davis, Pastor Miles McPherson, and Pastor Hubert Cooper. Thank you. Let's give the Lord a big hand. Come on, let's give the Lord a big hand. Amen. Pastor George and Pastor Herbert are coming up during the Q&A time. I just have uh, some teaching I want to do. Uh, thanks for coming out. Y'all excited? If you can get your phone out, uh, we're going to give you a bunch of slides to take pictures of information that you can take home. And then we'll do Q&A at the end. Hopefully, probably 20 minutes or so, 30 minutes from now, and then we'll do Q&A, and you can ask whatever you want to ask. Amen. Um, did you all enjoy, enjoy this, the morning? Yeah. Amen. Um, a couple things. One, this is the book that comes out September 11th, and everybody in the conference is going to get, today, by Friday, I think, the first chapter, and, I mean, the introduction in the first chapter. And you're also going to get information about a simulcast event that we're doing on September 15th. So September 11th, it comes out. The simulcast event called the Race for Unity is that Saturday. And it's going to be about a three and a half hour event that we're going to do at our church. And the first hour or so is going to be the full message. You only got part of the message today because of time. So it's going to be the full message of what we talked about today and whatever I add to it between now and then. <laughs> because I've been doing that for a year, trying to practice it and warm it up. And I actually literally got like five points yesterday that I added to it. Um, uh, you know what I'm saying? I was, I was sitting there going, oh, I'm not feeling this. Oh, okay, now I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it. Got up five o'clock this morning. I, it was just like last minute, last minute. But anyway, you know how messages go, y'all know. Um, so in that event in, in, in September, it's going to be about three and a half hours. The first section will be teaching worship. The second section will be small groups. Um, the event in September, you'll get information on, there's a simulcast company organizing all that kind of stuff. Uh, the goal is for churches of different ethnicities to do it together. So if you're all black, all white, Hispanic, it's not going to be ideal because we got to do it together. And, and especially during the small group time, because we want to get small groups of six, seven people of different ethnicities to talk and have a discussion and learn uh, firsthand information about our experience. And we have, we're going to have guidelines to make those small discussions safe so people kind of feel sketchy about having those conversations because those are, you know, you know some people have never had those conversations. And so we'll have, we'll have a small group discussion. And the third hour will be um, next steps. Um, things you can do together as churches in the community, things you can do um, with the police. Um, uh, if you have issues with the police or you want to have better relationships with the police, there's a guy in our church who has an organization called Game Changer, and they do, they do a three-hour, they get the police, five or six cops, five or six people from the community, and they spend about two or three hours together talking about whatever 
Then they go to a game, a sporting event, and they hang out. Football, baseball, whatever it is. If you don't have a, a pro team and, you know, they go to a college game and they hang out. And we've had cops, dudes from the community arguing. And then they go to the game and they go like, you know what? I'm cool. I don't agree with you, but we're cool. And, that, and that's all right. That's all right. Can I get amen? So, but we're going to have stuff for next step. So it's going to be teaching, conversation, next step, and then let's go live it. And then go about it. And of course, you got to buy the book. You know what I'm saying? We want you to buy the book. Okay. So what I'm going to do, does that make sense? So y'all, all y'all will get that before the end of the week in your email. And, and then uh, you can pre-order the book. Book comes out September 11th. What I want to do is just spend some time giving you some more information to think about. And then we can do Q&A. Is that, is that fair? Okay, so on the screen, y'all be, it'll be on the screen. Uh, the goal of all of this, because when I was sitting there listening, I was wondering, for some people, this conversation and push for diversity is completely new. And you, I don't want to distract the push for diversity with the whole goal is to love like Jesus. Amen. So is that on the screen? We want to love like Jesus. What does the Bible say in Matthew chapter 27? Here it is right in front of me. Matthew 27, 37. Uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, all your soul. This is the first and greatest commandment. Uh, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. And so all this should challenge you. How am I not loving people? I give you a confession. When I started writing this book, um, I wrote a ver If you've ever written a book, you write 15 versions of it. Amen. And, the, and, the, and, and, and I had writers that, uh, anyway, I was, I, I, when someone from my church read the first draft, she said, you're angry. And I was like, hmm. Luckily, God from sent her from heaven to help me rewrite it with more grace. And, and the reason I tell you that story is because I had anger in me that, and frustration in me from pain that I was trying not to vent and didn't think I was venting. And the reason I tell you that story is because racism impacts all of us somehow, whether we want to avoid people or angry people, whatever. And it's not, you know, just a group of people, just, you know, you have pain. And this is all designed. If I can learn how it is negatively impacting my ability to love people, that's the purpose. And so when you meet somebody, I have guys in my church, they, they, uh, it's a one white guy in particular, and he's like one of my best friends. And he says, look, and he's very wealthy, very well off. And he says, when I'm sitting in church next to this kind of person, I feel cool. But if I was to go outside and see them, I would go on the other side of the street. Are you following what I'm saying? So that right there, we need to deal with that. He's a sweet guy. He, you know, he's not a racist. He's just scared. And, and I said, okay, we have to deal with that because that guy is my friend. And that guy, I don't know who the guy was, but you know, that, that dude is my friend. And, that, and I know that dude's heart. He's made the image of God like you. So all of this is for you to process information. How can I love better? Yeah. Amen. And, and the best thing to do is to practice. Practice talking to people that don't look like you about stuff. And uh, I have a whole ch chapter on having race conversations, which are very difficult to have unless you realize that every time you talk to anybody, you are having a race conversation. If you are white and you're talking to a white person, if you're black, you're talking to a black person, you're having a race conversation because you are uh, subconsciously either reinforcing what you think you already know about people like you or different. 
or your understanding is being expanded. I have had so many people come and say, you're not, you're not really black. Wow. Yeah, I'm just not the black you thought. Wow. Are you following what I'm saying? So every time you talk to somebody, if I talk to people from the South, I'm not from the South. I, the South scares me because I grew up in New York and I saw all the videos about Martin Luther King walking down the street. That was my upbringing. That's my narrative, right? So when I say scared, the, the South is foreign to me. Right? And when I hear people talk like, how y'all doing? To me, that is such a sweetness to it. Are y'all following what I'm saying? I, but, but, I, but I have very little information. So I have to have reps. Reps is an athletic term for repetition. Uh, having conversations with people to understand people. And so be conscious when you're talking to people to allow them to self-disclose themselves to you versus you imposing on them. Is this making sense to y'all? Okay, very good, very good. Okay, because I'm going to ramble off a little bit here. Okay, first one, uh, first slide, honor. Uh, the third option is this. Instead of us and them, place a priceless value on the image of God and people. Now, when I see you, that Jesus died for you. So I have to place that priceless value on myself. You are that important. Amen? No matter what you look like. So when you see... When you see uh, and I'm going to go to extremes. When you see a march because someone got shot, or when you see a terrorist, or when you see people who are um, they're deporting, every single one of those people, you should place a priceless value in their life. And not the people who live in my neighborhood look like me. And, and this, is, this is the challenge. This is, this is the whole process. Can I get to that point where I don't where I don't say something or think something that I just got an antidote, but I don't really know them. I mean, how many Muslims do you really know? You know, how many people from the Middle East have you ever really met and sat down and talked with? I went to, when I went to Israel, I was walking through the old city and, and I ended up talking to this dude. He was like my age and he was working in his clothing store. And I, said, and I just said, hey, I want to talk to you, man, because I, I just need to know. Like, tell me some stuff. And he went and got me this little tiny cup of um, whatever it was. It was strong. <laughs> and we sat down there in the curb and just talked about him. I said, what, you know, like, you guys are Muslims. Do you, are you guys, do you, you, don't, you don't have sex with women. You're, what, do you, what do y'all do? And tell, I want to know because I don't. And he enlightened me and stuff firsthand, right? So, so placing a price, God loves that dude. And that guy needs to experience that from me. So when you experience people here at this conference, when you walk out of here, just ask yourself, can I do that with every person I meet? And when I talk to them, do I place a priceless value on them and want to hear them and want to encourage them and speak life into them? Because my image of God is the same in them as it is in me. It's not inferior or superior. Amen? Amen. Okay. Um, Racism. I talked about three different kinds of racism. You can take a picture. Institutional racism, cultural systems designed to limit certain people from access to stuff, employment, healthcare, food. Now, this is something you could do a lot of study on. Uh, I gave you one example. Housing. My sister was moving to Maryland, and she was in uh, Montgomery County. Anybody here from Maryland? Okay, Maryland. My, my sister was going to move to Mar was was living in Maryland, and she was going to buy a house. And the real estate agent told her. We have to find an appropriate neighborhood for you. So make a long story short, the real estate agent ended up becoming very close friends with us. I even remember her, and I live in California. She ended up becoming close friends with our family. And one of the neighborhoods that was inappropriate for my sister and her family, they moved in anyway. Okay, because they said, that's where we want to live. And she went to the library, and a lady looked at her at the library and said, what are you doing here? And she said, I'm looking for books for my kids. She said, well, the Klan's up here. 
And, but, the, but, the, but going back to the institutional, there are institutional barriers that, you remember I was talking about the field, the field trip thing? Uh, um, the five people who, who I asked to be the only white person in the place. And there were two guys who didn't do it. I want you to imagine if they didn't want to be in that situation, how, what measures would be taking place to make sure that society would never be that by people in power, okay? It's not an indictment on you. It's just to be aware of mass incarceration. You should watch the movie 13th if you haven't seen it. Anybody ever seen that movie? Raise your hand if you have not seen 13th. Okay, 13th is based on the 13th Amendment. Basically says, I'm a paraphrase, that you cannot have slaves in the United States of America unless they're incarcerated. So watch them, watch them. it's 90, 90 minutes and it will blow your mind. You have to watch it again to really understand that you won't believe what you see, okay? But you, <laughs> but you have to watch it. Um, uh, personally mediated, discriminate, uh, um, personally, me- not medicated, should be mediated. <laughs> personally medicated racism. <laughs> That's my bad. Personally mediated. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you are personally medicated because of racism. <laughs> personally mediated is, personally mediated is what we all think of racism. I don't like you. That's, that's the institutional or governmental systems. Um, and and let, me, let me back up. Racism is global. Amen? It's, it's perpetrated by every group of people in every country. So, this is, so personally mediated is me to you, me to you. Institutional is usually, can only really be um, set up by the people in power. So wherever country that is, whoever's in power, they're the ones that can only do that one set up systems that favor them and keep people in certain places, like redlining and it's not giving loans to uh, certain neighborhoods. You all know about redlining? You take a map and you say this neighborhood and they took a red marker around the neighborhood and said, we don't give loans to that neighborhood. It's called redlining, just look it up, okay? Uh, it, it, it was practiced years ago, more prevalent than now, even though there was a case where um, a bank um, lost a lawsuit in 2015 for doing that to keep people to, so homes values don't go up, therefore people get stuck in that neighborhood. Uh, internalized racism. Um, this is when someone is victimized of racism so much that they begin to hate themselves or they begin to um, repeat what the racists say about them, about themselves or people like them. I don't know if you've never, you've never heard this term. How, how many of you are here, are white, have heard the term, the white man's ice is colder? You never heard that? Anybody black people ever hear that? Raise your hand. <laughs> you've heard that. <laughs> the white man's ice is colder is internalized racism. It's like if, I, if, it, if it's white, it's better. Why? Because that's what the message has been forever. My grandfather was a very dark Jamaican man and he um, wanted to be white because he said his life would be so much easier. That's internalized. I, hate my, I, can't, I can't do this anymore. And so those are different kinds of racism. And why is this important? Because there are people who have, they may not even know that's what it is. They have come to resent themselves. There was a guy who had a fish tank 
in the middle of the fish tank, he put a piece of glass and water was on both sides and he put fish on one side and the fish kept hitting the glass, but they couldn't see it because it was glass and it was in the water and the fish kept hitting it in the middle of the fish tank. Fish tank, middle, fish on this side, a piece of glass in the middle. Are y'all following me? And then after a while, he took the glass out and the fish never went past that mark. And so when you get told all your life, you're never going to do this, you never, you never, never, you finally just say, give up. Why try? There's a lot of people paralyzed by that today. Hmm? A lot of people paralyzed by it. I've affected, you know, I've I've hit those walls and I I, I don't know, I, I don't, a lot of, I can't speak for everybody, but a lot of my friends feel the same way. They just hit the wall, it's like, well, whatever, it's, you know, it's, it's not going to happen. Okay, so that, that's, a, that's something that if you, haven't, if you haven't lived that out-group experience, that left-handed experience, you don't know. And you don't necessarily have to know. You don't have to have the experience, but to be aware and to believe that it's true. One of the things that is so frustrating when I, when, I, when I went up today and talked about thanking um, uh, Pastor Greg for giving us the opportunity to talk about this and when he asked us to tell us is that, and again, I can't speak for all people of color. I can tell you a lot of friends I had. We never believed. It's always like we're making it up or we're exaggerating. And for someone to say, talk to us. And when I, when I, when I sent that, those couples those people, the white people, into the place where they wouldn't, wouldn't, where they were the only white person, it was like, dang. Like my, my assistant, who's back here, he's a white guy, he's in the back room there. He went to a white, he went to a black barbershop, right? And he's like, oh yeah, I'll go to the barbershop. I was like, okay, cool, let's see what happens. And, 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 and he had a great experience. And matter of fact, all the people who went out, nothing bad happened. Nothing they, nothing they thought, nothing they feared happened. Of all the things they feared, it had never happened. You follow what I'm saying? It's never happened. It didn't happen. And the opposite happened. Right? So therefore, but, but there's still, I'm not going to go. Because there's this liar saying those people are dangerous. The guy who said he wouldn't go to be the only white person, he said, the first five minutes, he said, I can't run real fast. Then they're going to chase me. I'm not going to... <laughs> and let me tell you, let me tell you something. All of y'all know who he is. All of y'all know who he is. All of y'all read books from him. All of y'all. And his partner on the phone after five minutes said, you need to stop. And I said to him, can you write me a paragraph of what you just said so I could put it in the book? A month later, I had not gotten the paragraph. I said, brother, you've written 50 books. You can't give me a paragraph? So, and it's in the book. So he said, if I went to a black church, I would want to leave immediately. I would feel uncomfortable, blah, 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 blah. The reason I'm saying this is that this is stuff that, you know, and, and flip side, I have a guy, black guy, friend of mine, he's got issue with white people. I said, brother, you can't do that. You got to deal with that. All of this is the process of learning how to love like Jesus. Simple. Are you following me? 
Okay, very good. Okay, uh, uh, we can't do this alone. Hebrews uh, chapter four, ten, we get that. Let us not consider one another to serve. Let us consider one another to serve love and good works. You can't do this by yourself. Can you imagine if you got someone from a different ethnicity to walk with you in this journey, and just say, "Tell me about me. Tell me about you. Tell me about your experience." You know how powerful that would be. Instead of guessing and get your information from the media or from television, don't believe that stuff. It's just not, you know, it's, it's, it's snippets. Get somebody in your life. Amen? Um, okay. Social narrative. This is the story that shapes how you see yourself, those around you, and how you believe they will treat you. It influences how you act and believe others will treat you. Your social narrative, and one of the questions we will discuss in our simulcast is this. When was the first time you realized your race? What did your family teach you about other ethnicities? And by the way, there's only one race. There's only human race. So, so there's no such thing as other races. I just want to, forgot to tell you. <laughs> I, forgot, I, forgot, I forgot to say that today. But I had, I had a lot of stuff on my mind. Um, um, when's the first time you realized your race? What did your family teach you? Now, I want you to imagine you're in a, you don't have to say this in front of people you don't want to say it in front of, but we, we, our staff is very multicultural, church is multicultural, so we had three consecutive staff meetings on race, and we sat in a group and we asked this question, and people started sharing stuff that their parents told them, experiences they had, and, and that their coworkers never knew. Because we smile, how you doing for a great day, here's your job, and they leave. Without saying, here's what's happened to me. Here are the experiences that shaped me. I had a, a, a black man do this to me. I had a white man do this to me. I had an Asian man do this to me or what, whatever it is. And for you to say it out loud and, and to process it. Because a lot of times you could have a, one experience with one person and it shapes you good or bad. Amen. And by the way, it takes experience with another one person, Jesus, to shape you good or bad. That's a good thing. But you need to ask yourself, what is the story that shapes your life? In other words, that shapes your view on race. What did your parents teach you? What was your experience growing up? Where did you learn what you believe? Because you may just think, what I believe is just the way it is. No, you learned it. So where did you learn it? And is it accurate? Is it true? I could tell you, all of us have only part of the story. You don't. You just don't. If two people get in a discussion, and by the way, if you're married, you please learn this. I've been married 34 years, so I got a little credibility. Uh, the truth is always in the middle between what you and your wife believe. Right? So whatever you believe about people that are different than you, it's not the whole story. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. I've been in prisons where I, I went to a prison once in, in, a, in a juvenile hall, and I went into a kid, and they, he was a white supremacist teenager, went into his cell, and uh, his father abused him. And he ended up cursing me out, calling me all kinds of names. I left, came back a week later. Why? He's just a kid who's been hurt. And he was hurt by a white dude. I mean, his dad. And I'm sitting there going, brother, you're mad at me. Okay, let's think context here. Who hurt you? And I'm trying to turn him against his dad, but, but don't, let's think big picture. I'm a human, you're a human. And he got saved, and he got saved. But the point is, you have to think about your context. And if, if I know he's been hurt and been told stuff, what's that got to do with me? I'm going to love him through that. And so what you have to think, what is your social narrative? Now, your testimony is your biblical narrative. 
Your social narrative is what your social life has taught you and shaped you and, and, and how the lens, it's given you the lens. Let me say this, John Gray was so great and one of the things John Gray kept saying over and over again implicitly was, um, uh, let's be clear, we understand this. And one of the things we have to understand is that we only see in part, right? We only see in part. So whatever your parents told you, whatever your friends told you, whatever experience you had, even if someone beat you up, it's only part of the story. So, so just understand that, and, and that's your social narrative. So you need to be aware. I was taught, uh, uh, I was at a, at a church, and, and we did a staff meeting, and in the staff meeting, one of the pastors stood up, and youth pastors, he did a youth camp, and he was talking about racism to the, to the kids, and a girl came up and said, she was taught that every black man was a rapist. And he was black. He, he was doing the thing. And, and that's what she was taught. But God opened her eyes. Think how extremely insane that is. You follow me? That is insane. And so for you to step back and go, okay, what was I taught? And, and to be real revealing, you should write it down. I think you would be shocked. Man, do I really believe this? I can't trust those people. I can't. I never, you know, whatever it is you believe. Or, or every white person's got a lot of money. Because I know people who think every white person's got a lot of money. Fool, that ain't true, idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Are the opportunities and the worldview and the experiences very different? Yes, but you don't know all white people. You don't know all black people. You don't know all Hispanics. You don't know all of the immigrants that, I mean, listen, politics aside, for real, forget politics. These are humans living outside working their butt off, working their butt off. And God breaks God's heart that that situation exists. So what's your social narrative? And you can go down, what's my social narrative view against whites, blacks, Asians, whatever, and just ask yourself, man, I got I to repent of that. I gotta talk to somebody about that. This is just, this is Christianity. This is not really that big a deal. Uh, you know, I, mean, no, I say not big a deal. It's not a racial thing. This is, this is just walking with God. Social reinforcement. Social reinforcement is the interaction that reinforces the beliefs that your social of your social narrative. Uh, what does that mean? Is that the people in your life believe they have the same social narrative as you. So what do you do? You stand around, reinforce the same garbage by the people in your life. Oh. That's why you need to get someone else that doesn't reinforce the lies you have and the misperceptions you have. That's why it's so important to talk to somebody who's not like you and has a different experience. If you ever go to college, if, how many of y'all are in college age anyway, by the way? Not a whole lot. Um, your job, you should find somebody. How many of y'all are from the South? Like, 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 okay, great. I'm from New York, okay? So South New York, very different. You should find somebody from the north or from California. I live in California now, but I'm from New York. I grew up in New York. And find somebody from the city. And just tell them. Tell me about your life. I grew up, I grew up in, in New York, and one of my favorite groups of people, because it was my close friends, especially when I went to college, were Italians. And the Italian culture. Are you Italian? You Italian? You Italian? You half. Do you make your own gravy? Oh, yeah. Sauce. Sauce. Do you make it? Sauce, gravy. How big are your meatballs? 
Okay, because I, okay, okay. So my, 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 my college family was the Vendetto family, and I learned the Italian culture that adopted me in, and that I was cursed out if I did not eat on demand. Amen. And it was good. So I go to California and, and I meet Italians and, and they don't have that culture. They buy ravioli from the store. <laughs> they don't make their own gravy, their own sauce, their own monocot. They say monocotti, they monocot. They don't make, they make them tiny little meatballs. That's why I ask how big meatballs are. <laughs> because what I learned in that culture, do I have a whole lot more to learn? Yeah, but I just know, I just know You meet other people and get exposed. I have a chapter in the book on culture. Culture is the way you do things. Every culture is trying to do the same thing. Raise a kid, make food, make a living. We just do it differently. So why can't I learn from your culture instead of saying my culture is better than yours to make the vision? Every culture, there's no culture in the world you can't say, hey, what's your favorite food? Oh, you want to eat? Boom. Every culture got food. <laughs> Can I get an amen? Every culture's got daddy, I mean, wife, husband issues. <laughs> Every culture's trying to raise their kids. Tell me how you do it. Okay? Okay, here we go. Um, unconscious bias. This refers to biases we have of which we are not consciously controlled. These biases occur automatically triggered by our own brain making quick judgments. Every single one of you have an unconscious bias and you learn that through your life, through your social narrative. In other words, when you see somebody, your brain automatically says, fear, comfortable, run, avoid, be cautious, automatically. And it's not based on information about that person because you don't know that person. And so... Again, we go back to, I got I to gotta, I gotta monitor what am I thinking, what am I feeling about people I meet and, and, and check, take every thought captive and make it obedient. Okay, I don't know about this person. And then you find out that person is the pastor. <laughs> right? <laughs> Who just prayed for your mom. But they went out the back door, you didn't see them go out the front door and then, you know, you had a little issue. Um, uh, um, intent versus impact. I'm, I'm trying to get to the Q&A, so I'm just going to, is this okay going to speed? Yes. Okay. Intent versus impact. Um, your stated intent or your belief and system. This is a, when I talk about blind spots or when people talk about blind spots, racial blind spots, a blind spot is the difference between your intent and your impact. And, and the, imp, the intent is, I, I, I love all people. The impact is, but I don't see color, so I don't see color. You just offended somebody. So your intent is to love all people, but the impact of what you do, that means you're blind to it. Are you following me? And again, there's two chapters on blind spots. Um, uh, uh, but again, it goes, if you have someone in your life, this all goes back to relationship. If you have someone in your life that can say, hey, is there anything I say that's offensive? Anything I say that's dumb? Anything I say that's inappropriate? Uh, is there anything I say uh, that's just wrong? What should I say? How do I word this? And the friends in your life that are still your friends and they never told you, they know your heart. Doesn't mean what you're saying is not wrong, but they know your heart. But, they, but, but the people who don't know your heart, you know, like John Gray. John Gray said a lot of stuff that if you didn't know John Gray, you'd be like, that dude, that dude says way too many racial things. But you know John Gray. Are you following what I'm saying? 
But, but you know, it's like, well, could a white guy get away with that? Well, it depends on the white guy. <laughs> and what I mean by that, it depends on the black guy. Because you can get up, a black guy can get up there and say that stuff with the wrong attitude, and it's like he ain't coming back. So it depends on the heart. Are you following what I'm saying? It depends on the heart. It's like when John Gray got up, his first thing he said, Miles, I can't see you because you blend in with the seat. <laughs> You're light-skinned, right? Now, some of y'all might have been like, man, that, why do you, that, was, that was mean. It wasn't mean, it was love. It was love, it was fine, it was fine. It's fine. He could have said it with a different heart. Okay, couple. No, what I mean by that is that if he said it with a different heart, it would have been bad. That was cool, okay. Now, uh, white fragility, this is a term that is offensive to people, but it's something you need to know about. <laughs> you? <laughs> Oh, this one, right? Okay, okay, yeah, yeah. So this is a state in which even a minimal amount of racial stress becomes intolerant, triggering a range of defensive responses. I don't see color, black friend, love everybody the same. You really need to be aware is if you have white fragility. Black people don't have fragility about this because we talk about it all the time. I'm, I'm sure there may be some, but this is, we live this from day one. Around our dinner table, these conversations happen are very different than the conversation at your dinner table. One's not right or wrong, it's just different. And so if you are nervous to talk about race, which causes you to avoid people, there's a conflict with the gospel with that. There's a conflict with relationship. And that's why having conversations will be very uh, more uncomfortable for some because of, of it's, it's new. And you feel like, rightfully so, but unfairly, that someone's going to accuse you of being racist because you're white. That is wrong, and I apologize for that. It doesn't mean that you probably don't know about a lot of things, but that doesn't make you a racist. Okay? Okay? So this is something to be important. Now, the good thing about knowing this is that you can test this. Go have a conversation with some of your friends. See how you feel. And the more conversations you have, the more you learn. You can see it. You know what? I'm more comfortable with this. I, could, I went to Canada, and I think this is the last thing that we're going to do questions. Um, I went to Canada to do an event years ago, and I went five, six, seven times to Calgary. And I was like, something is different with these. It was mostly white people that were up there I was dealing with, mostly, but not all. I said, something's different about these white people. Anybody here from Canada, by the way? Very good. Okay. This is for you. And I was like, these people are nice. They're different nice. And I couldn't figure out what it was. And then it hit me. They don't have white fragility. There's no history of slavery there. Slave legacy is a term you need to know. People always say, well, that was a long time ago. Well, kinda. <laughs> slavery ended, four million people walked off the job. Then you had convict leasing. You arrest them and you lease them out. Then you had Jim Crow. And then you had mass incarceration. All these people you see and getting arrested, okay, they put them to work. The, the prison business is a multi-billion dollar business. You can't have a multi-billion dollar business if no one's in jail. Why is it that when black people on crack, 
it's a war, um, a, a war on drugs. You got to arrest them and throw them away forever. And yet, if you're on powder cocaine, which is mostly white, it's just no big deal. And now you have an opioid epidemic. We got to get them counseling and get them treatment, but not arrest them. <laughs> you follow what I'm saying? Now, you may not see it that way, but the fact of the matter is, there's a whole bunch of people who, are, who have been arrested because of crack. <laughs> And so that, so I go back to the slave legacy, that cloud of oppression started in slavery and it's still dealing with it today. That's the slave legacy. Are you following me? Canada, say it again. Yes, they're privatizing prisons, big business. So it's healthcare in prisons, it's food, it's laundry, it's construction, multi-billion. But you don't have that unless you have people's. Who, unless you have people who are being arrested, so you gotta, how, can we, how can we arrest a whole bunch of people so we can put them in the hands of business? Watch the, the, the documentary 13. It'll blow your mind. But in Canada, I went to Canada, and these people, there, was, there, wasn't, there wasn't any of this, I have a black friend-ness. It was like, hey, you're, you're just a guy. And I was like, I didn't, I didn't get it. I, I didn't, and it hit me. It hit me. Um, pastors, come on up. I talk a, a long time. Uh, Bishop George, Bishop Herbert, and Bishop Benny. <laughs> Bishop, Bishop. Um, questions? Who has the mic? Yes, questions, just raise your hand. And there's a microphone right there. As they said um, to Michael Jackson, never give the mic away <laughs> when he's a little kid. But go ahead. Thank you guys so much. My name is Jared, uh, pastor at New Tribe Church in Nashville. And the uh, question I had is uh, when you see society trying to deal with the race issue, we hear things like creating workplace diversity. So you have. Create right what? Sometimes you see people uh, in an effort to uh, squash racism, they will say, we need to work on workplace diversity. So you got two interviews, two resumes, the black guy gets preference over the white guy in the effort to qual racial diversity. Now in the church, we want to be a multicultural, right? We wanna be racial uh, equality across the board, but I don't wanna be standing up there all the time saying, we wanna be multiracial. We wanna be, and I don't wanna talk about my black friend growing up in the neighborhood because it can come off as white fragility, and I also don't wanna have the mixed motive of hiring someone or recruiting someone because of the color of their skin. So from, from your perspective, which everyone in the room has such a higher respect for now, <laughs> what, is the attractive, what is the attractive way or the, or the honest way from your perspective of how someone like myself can communicate racial equality from a place of honesty and not trying to create workplace diversity? That's a great question. Um, I, I'll step back one. Where's your church at? So I'll give you the big context. If you it, it, define the area of Nashville that is your mission field, and it shouldn't only be the areas that look like you or you feel comfortable. Right? And so you say, here's my area. My area is 90% white. You're gonna have a 90% white give or take everything. Right? Don't force it. 
right? And so, uh, number one. Number two, there's always a God factor. We just need to pray, God, we want to honor you. We want the church to be what you want us to be. And we want you to guide the right people to, to be here. Because you don't want to hire someone because of how they look and they don't do a good job. That doesn't honor them. Amen? Part of else your question was affirmative action. Affirmative action um, is the second rate version of just loving people. But since you can't love people, we kind of kind of make it happen, right? Because, because even, even what's qualified was determined by a system or by the right-handed system in, in the first place. And so there's a lot of hair on a resume because the resume is a piece of paper about this part of the life, not the history of the whole system, which is a very complicated thing. But getting back to you, I would first say, here's my area. And Lord, we want to represent this area of ministry. And by the way, Lord, I have in the past only focused on this community when there's a brown community right there. So why don't I do that? I think that's the question you should ask first is what your area is and why that you're not ministering around your fears. And then you say, okay, now here are the areas. I got to go, now, what's the practical symbol of discipleship for that area that leaders are going to come out of it? What's the, what's the most efficient way to reach that community? People like that community in general. God's going to use it. And so use the same, uh, apply the same rules that you would do to the white community. Well, I'm going to get people with skinny jeans, boom, boom, boom. <laughs> you know, so I think it's defining the area and really having a commitment to care for the people in that area and make disciples of that area. And then it's going to, and then it's going to happen. Saying you want a diverse church is not, that's sincere. So say it. You know, and, and I'll, I'll say one thing else. When something happened, I was talking to a pastor last night about how do you, how does he be more relevant, diverse, uh, uh, relevant to different races. I said, listen, when, some, when a tragedy happens, like the guy that got shot in Sacramento, that kid, don't be scared to, to pray for them. Because I think people think if I pray for them, that means I'm siding with blacks against whites because the devil says you've got to be one or the other. But you're a pastor, so we can pray for that kid's family and that, and that kid's brother who, who had mental issues, you know what I'm saying? And say, that's what we're going to do. And people go, okay, what did that mean? It meant I prayed. But what did that mean? It meant I prayed. It means that there's a hurting family and they're crying out and they're probably not going to get any justice and that's messed up. <laughs> as simple as that. So... Hopefully I, hopefully I answer your question. Can I add to it? I think Sorry. it's really important to, to, to not take the position where we're trying so hard to do something external. Because really, you know, to, 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 to get the situation corrected in our church environments, it, it really has got to start with addressing the biases. And all of us have them. And, and, and I think it's important to understand this is not a, a white uh, church issue or a Hispanic church issue or black church issue. We all deal with this. And I think, you know, part of what happens is when you take the time to really do what Miles has said, where we're starting to educate ourselves on what we don't know. I'm convinced that the majority of what happens, especially in the church, is purely ignorance. We just don't know. I don't, I don't, and outside the church is different. But in the church, when we have the Holy Spirit, we really do love God. We really do love each other, but we don't always understand each other. And so I think, you know, when we t make moves in our church, we really have to address it from the standpoint of, Let's really tackle and correct the biases that we have, which means we got to engage in conversations outside of our own in-group. We've got to expose ourselves to something other than what we would normally be exposed to. And I think in that process, as we start to understand one another better, it becomes real easy to know what should we do 
that creates an environment that doesn't just cause us to just minister to one group of people or the other. I think, I think if we attack it from just trying to figure out what should we do better to, so we don't feel like, like we're doing the wrong thing, then we end, up, we end up attacking, we end up trying to fix the leaves on the tree and never deal with the root. So good. Can, can I, I just want to add here, somebody's got a question, because I think it was asked on the, on the panel, you know, about how to become more diverse or... And, and really, it's a heart issue. I think it comes out of the leader. And if God's birthing that in your heart, um, you know, it, it's going to eventually come out in your church. And I just think, you know, even talking about it, when I'm preaching, because I have a very diverse church, I said, hey, I just want to let you know, when we all have the marriage supper of the Lamb, it's going to be carne asada. And then people laugh. And, and I, then I'll say, oh, no, no. Oh, no, it's going to be this kind of food, which is another group. Or this kind of food, it's another group. And people just, it's good for people to know that even you as a pastor recognize. There's just, there's just, it's just, and you can make it fun. And just like, and they're laughing and, you know, and I said, hey, listen, I'm not racist, guys. Look at my wife's white. Like she's nightlight white, like bright white. <laughs> like, Wendy, we want to go to sleep, cover yourself because you're lighting up the room white. <laughs> See, y'all laugh, right? And, and there's something about just, just now, if you don't know my heart, and if you don't know my wife, you'd be saying something like that. And then I say, and by the way, there's some jokes I say that you cannot say. Yeah. And people are like, oh, that's right. And my wife says this to me. She says this. Why is it that when we go to restaurants and the people that are waiting on us, if they happen to be Hispanic, Latino, there's an automatic connection with you guys. She goes, it's not fair because it doesn't happen that way with white people. And, and, and just being married to my wife for 19 years and having this discussion, when she said in L.A., well, she, she got more specific. I grew up in Pico Rivera, California, 95% Hispanic. I went to a school, Whittier Christian High School, Whittier, California, 95% white. So when she comes to where I grew up and we go to Target, and she is the only white Caucasian person in that store. And they're, well, I check out, they're, they're speaking Spanish, thinking I understand, which I don't. I'm Hispanic, but I don't speak the language. To some Hispanics, I'm not really Hispanic. So even when we deal with the racism between races, it's in races. It's in races. And, and that's a whole other discussion. And even some of my friends, I so, so, so here's another one. Somebody comes up to me and says, hey, what's your nationality? I'm, I'm Mexican-American. And you don't speak Spanish? I say, what, what's your nationality? I'm Italian. You speak, you speak Italian? You speak German. It doesn't nullify you being part of a culture because you don't speak the native language. Can I get an amen right now? I mean, you're African-American and somebody say, yeah, we can. do you speak the language from whatever nation you came from, Africa? I'm just saying. And I just think, you know, sometimes we just make it, and this is a complex issue that having a discussion like this, and I wanna say, I'm so proud of Ark, I'm proud of Miles, I'm proud of Herbert, I'm proud of Bishop, that for us to start this conversation. And I heard everybody talking afterwards. I mean, you hear the buzz, people talking about this kind of stuff, and the two Hispanic young leaders, I walked in and one of them standing back there, and he, had, he said, people are coming up and saying, are you the two Hispanic leaders that <laughs> Benny Perez is talking about? 
And this is what he told me. I was going to say, he says, yeah, because we're the only two young Hispanic <laughs> leaders that are here. You had a question? Yes, yeah, so, uh, well, representing the city church here in Jacksonville, Florida, Bishop, I love your, I love your church. Um, when we think about when it comes to oh, the art conference, and I love it how it's in Birmingham, Alabama. This is kind of where it all started with MLK and, and Selma and, and uh, how the church and MLK's efforts led to the Voting uh, Rights Act. What can we do as a church and as leaders in the church to end systematic oppression just as they did? <laughs> Herbert. <laughs> Herbert. Hey, hey, hey. Herbert. Well, we only have about 10 minutes. We'll do one answer per one person per question. Gotcha. Okay. We're gonna, we only got 10 minutes, so we're gonna, one of us will answer each next few questions. And this one will go to Herbert. I think, I, 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 how can we end systematic racism? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, 10 minutes. Well, if I had the answer, for real. No, if I had, I mean, I'll tell you something. But if anybody had the answer, they'd be like, you know, <laughs> they'd be God. <laughs> I, I, I think I think if all of us buy my book, that's how it's one to everyone. Yeah, I make it make it an everyone bestseller. It'll help it. I think if 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 people, it's it, it's all individual systems and politics and all this individual people, and if people's hearts change, it's gone. I mean, that's really the answer. Jesus is going to change people's hearts. Right. Systems are not going to do it. Laws are not going to do it. God has to change hearts, and that's my short, yes. quick answer. Next person. Who is the, oh, here's the microphone. The microphone man is going to determine who gets it. I have, I'm sorry, I gotta, I'm on this side, sorry. Oh. Hey, um, so my husband and I are in our church where in our county, we're several counties away from Indianapolis, and all of the counties are about 60 to 65,000 people. In all of those counties, I already double-checked these percentages. We're at like 96% white or Caucasian. How do we start this conversation that we feel so passionately about? Um, just saying we're not going to stand for race, racism or division or all of those kinds of things when even in our county, we don't have the diversity or in the surrounding counties. What does that look like? How do we practically reach out and say, let's start this conversation? Yeah, we actually have a, a campus there in Indianapolis and Lawrence. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, here's a great way is we just got back from the art conference and it was incredible and race, racism and racial issues were brought up. I heard about white fragility. I thought they were speaking in tongues. I didn't even know it existed. And there's a book coming out and then they're going to be having a time. On September, in September, that they're going to be talking about it. And I would love our church to be a part of this. And I think it's going to be awesome. It's going to create some, create some great conversation. I got back, I, I'm telling you, I came back and I was edgy. There were things I thought I knew that I did not know by, by, by going to Arkansas. I'm better because of it. I would just love for us to go on this journey together to educate ourselves on how we can make a better difference in our community. Who has the mic? Oh. My question is actually really similar. It's just on the flip side. So how, um, as a minority, as minorities, do we start conversations um, speaking about race and speaking about offenses? Because in my experience, it's only happened. I've been able to educate somebody 
when I've been offended. And that's like the opportunity or the doorway to where I can educate someone. So how do I do that without an offense having taken place? Well, I think you have to take the approach, and I think this, this applies to all of our environments. Uh, the Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you have to take the Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. We all have a, a friend group. We all have you know, family members. And it's better to start those conversations with people you have relationships with. Because as, as he said, as it relates to John Gray, you can hear John say what he said and understand it because you know John. And so the people that, that you're closest to are going to know you. And if you have, especially if you have friends that are not black or if, you, if you're a white person, have friends that are, are not white or Hispanic person, you know, f- find some friends that, that know you, know your heart, but that are open to you all sitting and having this conversation. And you may sit and, and meet at a coffee shop or meet at a, a restaurant and just, just have the conversation. And, and, it, and it's better to have the conversation when it's not on the heels of some shooting on TV or something that happened that, that has our emotions up. Because the bottom line is this is an emotional topic. It is an emotional topic. And if you can have it in a conversation with friends and you kind of lay the ground rules that, hey, we all love each other. We all know each, our heart. And we're not trying to offend each other. We're trying to educate one another. And that, that's what we did in Memphis. And in that room, having a chance to just have a conversation, we all found out things that, that we you probably thought we knew and, and had a good handle on, but it helped all of us. And when you start that with your immediate group, and then you can then take that and extend it out to people that you may not know quite as well as that initial group. And maybe each of you have a friend that they can invite to the conversation. Before, and, and think about it. If we all did that, then before you know it, in our environments, we start to have conversations that start conversations and it starts a, a groundswell that helps to eventually, slowly, you know, change the process of how we think about each other. That's great. Whoever has the mic. Oh, here we go. Good afternoon, everybody. I have a, a question for the panel and for the room. I grew up in Florida, uh, a little place called Avon Park, Florida, and about 18 miles southwest of there, there's a place called Niggertown No. You can actually Google it. It's still what? on the map. Niggertown No. So um, I grew up in an all-white church. They tried to kick us out. Then I went to an all-black church. I wasn't black enough um, because I had white perspectives. So when they heard me talk on the phone, they th- they, I said, my name is Robert. They said, you're Trevor. And I was like, well, no, not, not Trevor. Right? But my question is this right here. Um, how do you gentlemen as pastors or anybody here as leaders deal with when you're profiled? I heard your wife. I, I, I was like, wow, uh, brother on the end, saying how they looked at her because she's, she has biracial kids. But, and, and my other question is, how many of your white friends that you have told about the talk? Because I got a son that's about six foot three, but he's been about six foot three since he was 12. We literally had to move from Florida back to Virginia because that was around the time Trayvon Martin got killed. And it was just a bad place for young black men of color. What's your, qu- it, what's your question? My question is, when you guys have the talk, the, the, the minorities, when us men, we have the talk with our sons and our daughters, how many of your white friends did you invite to that talk? How many white friends do we invite? Do you invite to the talk? Because white people don't have to have the talk. What we tell our kids, how to, how to conduct yourself. Have, have you guys even considered that? No. H- having the talk with white folk about what we have to tell our children? Because I think they can see our perspective through our oh, children. Oh, um, my son's a cop. So my son's way beyond that age. He actually now arrests people. <laughs> and I go with him. Um, to do ministry, it's, it's really fascinating. Um, when there was a shooting, the shooting, I referred to, the shooting I referred to in our church happened on a Tuesday. We had a pastor meeting on a Wednesday, and we had 30 pastors in the room, and they're like 15 nationalities or whatever, and we talked about, we had this talk. 
And there were guys in there saying, hey, this is what I tell my son. And then another pastor who's here said, I can't imagine ever having to tell my daughter that because she's not necessary. And so we had that collective talk um, and we had this kind of conversation with our pastors. Um, but to have it with, no, I, I, I don't, you know, if, if I have it with my son, um, I, I, no, I, I didn't have it with somebody else. Another question? I don't have the mic, so he's in the back. Um, oh, you have it. This is my girlfriend. How you doing, girlfriend? This is my buddy. Um, I was just wondering, I've grown up in a really white home, and... <laughs> well, <laughs> and that's not a bad thing. Well, I mean, it's, it's not like a bad everyone thing. around me, like, there's no blacks in the neighborhood or anything, and I was just... I'd like to open the doors to some people I've seen around that are black and my friend group, they're all white too. So I was just wondering how can I introduce that into my friend group without getting judged and everything else and how do I respond to that if they do judge me? Did, have you ever mentioned it to them and they said they don't want to do that? A few of them, yes. Yeah, yeah. I think a couple things. Oh, does anybody want to deal with this? Okay. You have a mic. You have a mic. <laughs> I thought we were supposed to let it throw. Good, good. Go ahead. No, go. I'll get the next one. Okay. Um, uh, real quick, because we only have a, a few minutes. Um, uh, I would minister to them about what's going on with them and don't judge them for judging you. And then I would look for venues where you can meet some of those kids, maybe a church group or maybe something, and you wanna, you wanna be sensitive because they're not gonna know you're a 10 either. Yeah. And so you wanna be careful how you do that, but I would definitely press into it. Um, and you're gonna have a ministry opportunity on both sides, okay? I know that, I, I mean, I get the next question, so I'm gonna make the last statement here just for a second. <clears throat> I came, one of the pastors here at ARC, you would know who he is, he's an African-American pastor, a black pastor. After the Memphis meeting, he came up to me here at ARC and he said, you know, Benny, when you were, I think maybe the only Hispanic in the room there, and, I, and, and we kept talking black, white, black, white, black, white, black, white, and when you spoke up, it was the first time as a black man that I ever, ever realized that I was ignorant towards Hispanics. And I said, well, man, I, I appreciate that. He goes, no, no, I, I, and this is just for leaders. If you're in here, he says, I went back to my church. I got in front of my church and I apologized to all the Hispanics in my church for making it a black and white issue only. He says, as a result of that, they feel more empowered. They now are inviting more of their friends to come to the church and he's seen a big influx of Hispanics in his church. And as a result of all that, he said, I want you to come and preach in our church. So I'm telling you that if you would just address it as a leader, and maybe it could be to, to, to blacks, or maybe it's to white, or whatever nationality we've kind of overlooked. And I know there's a minutiae of them, but I'm just talking about that, that I would pray that as leaders, and you're a leader, whether you're a leader of a, of a church, your home, a business, wherever you have influence, that you would be the conversation starter. And, and I think, and I'm not just pushing Miles' book, because Miles is my friend, but I think the Lord has got something on this book and on this message that could really help bring about, because this is not, this is a New Testament thing. This is a kingdom thing that we come together, right? 
And racism isn't new. It's, all, it's in the Bible, you know, and how do we deal with it? So, you know, hopefully this is all helping, you know, all of us. I know it's helping me. It's helping me just to process and to learn. And I didn't even know a lot of stuff that, that Miles, you were saying, and even from our conversation at Disneyland. And I walked away saying, man, I need to learn more. Even being a person of color myself, I need to learn more to educate myself so that I'm able to articulate better to a culture that is looking for answers that is, that is only found, obviously, in Jesus. Unfortunately, our time is up. Ask it real quick. Real quick, for these two guys on the end, um, I heard about how you, one, one minute answer. We uh, your wives respond to the way they deal with things. What about the way your family and your family dealt with your wives and your culture and your culture, the way they dealt with your wives? Yeah, what time is the next app session? 3.15. Okay, so I gotta gotta go there, so yeah, real quick, go ahead. No, go ahead. I'll just do it with mine. So all my family, you know, they they married Hispanics, you know. Right. So yeah, I, I bring home a white, white girl. I mean, there's no tan on her at all, so I mean, and I joke with her, I'm going to be very, very honest, it was difficult because it was different. And sometimes when it's just different, it's just it's a little bit difficult. And, and Wendy had to learn, I mean, just the culture. She had to learn. And I got to give credit to my wife. She just, she just jumped in in there and learned and she won them over. And now, actually, my mom likes her more than she likes me. <laughs> Yeah, I just quickly just say, uh, if there were challenges or uh, I'm sure there were opinions, they weren't expressed. So my wife was very, you know, welcomed and open and loved her and uh, so on and so forth. So it was, yeah, so I was, she was very well embraced. Only, only issue is the first time, real quick, the first time she showed up to my home when we woke up, Oklahoma, my dad was so excited to meet my fiance and, and, and she shows up. And we get out the car. My dad's like, oh, I am so glad to be so glad you're here. And we woke up and my dad is barbecuing. He says, hey, come on, I got some meal for you. We're going to eat good. And he opened up the grill and there was a raccoon that my dad was grilling with his head on. And my wife got welcome to our culture. Yeah. <laughs> let, me, let me pray for us. Let me pray for us. <laughs> Lord, uh, I just pray that you would search our hearts. I pray that you would challenge us in our relationship with you and um, do a miracle in our our country through the church. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless y'all. See you at the next.